0: Hello and welcome to the exam hall. This is the podcast where I sit down with a guest and we answer questions from what is known as the hardest exam in the world, the All Souls Fellowship Exam. My name is Cherry and I am your host. I'm an ex-education professional, soon to be uni student and I'm regretting setting up that I need to think of something new every time I do this intro. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. I am glad that you have returned but if this is your first time listening to the podcast let me clue you in on what this is all about. All Souls College Oxford is maybe the most prestigious and exclusive academic institution in the world. Applicants must sit for three hour exams, two specialist papers, and two general papers, which is where we will be drawing our questions from. If you are lucky enough to be awarded one of only two possible fellowships per year, you receive funding and resources for a seven year period to fund any research project of your choice. To be eligible to apply, you must already hold a degree from Oxford or be currently studying there at postgrad level. However, here, at the exam hall, we have no eligibility criteria. Everybody is qualified by virtue of existing. So, without further ado, please uh, join me in welcoming my guest for today's episode. It is historian, YouTuber, and tour guide, Jenny Draper.
1: Hiya, I'm very glad to be here.
0: How are you doing today? I'm
1: very good, thank you very much. It's summer season, so it's very busy as a tour guide. London is absolutely rammed at the moment. Everybody has... Three years worth of holidays that they've not <laughs> taken all backed up, so the entire population of New York is is in London at the moment.
0: Yeah. Yes, lots of slow walkers.
1: Oh, yeah, that's something that London has noticed. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's quite hard to move when, around uh, when you're when you're actually taking them. You have to turn that part of your brain off. And, oh, really? And not yeah, you have to like physically like physically try and slow down. It your gets walk. quite
0: frustrating. I had um, cousins from up north come and visit last weekend, <laughs> and I was I was sort of about. 10 meters ahead of them at any one moment. Yeah. It's quite frustrating. Yeah. How's it it's been very stormy. How's tour guiding with all the It
1: got incredibly wet yesterday. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um like you can't stop a tour just because it's raining. If you did that in London, you'd never do anything. No. So you just yeah, you have to you have to just plow through it, find spots under cover as best <laughs> you can. It's not always possible. Um what makes it worse is uh, when I was training to be a tour guide, one of my mentors gave me a piece of advice and he said uh, you must never ever take an umbrella. When you have a private client, because they might have forgotten theirs. Oh. And if you've got one and they haven't, you're gonna have to give them yours. So you might oh. as well not take one. <laughs> Just wear a hat. And hope for the best. And hope for the best. For the best. Yeah. Oh so you my get God. super wet.
0: <laughs> well, Jenny, I'm very glad that you've taken time out of your busy summer season to talk to me about <laughs> Oxford. Yeah. It's a pleasure to be here. Um Jenny what qualifications do you have to be here today and we use qualifications in a very liberal sense those could be qualifications uh gained at a traditional academic institution or they could be qualifications gained a little more unconventionally from the school of life
1: um so um, my qualifications are that I spent four years I think as a viking uh, living as a Viking. <laughs> uh, no, I, uh, I used to work at um, a museum oh. that does Viking history. And uh, all the stuff, you get to pick a character, oh. you dress up, you, uh, you get, uh, I, in my case, I had a wig for part of it. That's um, a lot of fun. Yeah, sword. You can in my
0: head when you said that, I was like, did you live on a Viking commune for a few years? <laughs> kind of like how... I mean, I did, I did phrase it ambiguously <laughs> on purpose. Uh,
1: Yeah, so I spent four years living as a Viking um, and uh, in, in museums uh, all over the country. And uh, two years ago, I got my blue badge qualification, uh, which is the highest level of tour guiding qualification in the country. And uh, if you want to Become a blue badge tour guide for London. You have to sit, I think, I think it was 11 exams. So I feel like I am on par with the the Souls lot. Very rigorous examinations. Um, It's, yeah, I think, I think 11, uh, 10 or 11. And uh, yeah, the toughest one out of the lot is the one uh, where you're practicing to do coach tours. Okay. So they hire a coach for the day and all the candidates get on the coach And it starts driving around London, and you don't know where it's going to go. And one by one, they call you up. There's a microphone at the front, and you just have to talk about whatever we're going past. Wow. And if you get to a junction, you don't know if he's going to turn left or right at the top of that road. If you get stuck in traffic, you're not allowed to stop talking. You have to keep finding something to say. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah so that's
0: intimidating in front of everyone else taking the exam as well yeah
1: and the bus driver and four odd examiners yeah
0: what uh where did your coach take you
1: oh my god genuinely it's a blur Um, (laughs) I I got off the coach and everyone's sort of discussing doing the Mm. sort of after pick through and I genuinely couldn't remember like which places I'd had I do remember at one point um the coach. So the coach is obviously some, some like a, you can sort of run tactics on it a little bit because there are there are lots of roads that the coach can't fit down. So you know that uh, they're not gonna, you know they're not going to go down there. Yeah. You only have to practice the big roads. But um, I think so. We, I think what they'd planned to do was take us out to Canary Wharf, which okay. for people who don't know, London is like relatively far out from the centre. Yeah, like, I think we'd started near Westminster Abbey. And they'd try, they were trying to take us all the way down to Canary Wharf, which I'm sure sometimes when the traffic's all right, you can manage. Yeah, But we did not get good traffic. We were absolutely stuck solid on, uh, on the road through Wapping. And I think they just sort of, they had, they had to, because we'd all been, we'd all said, we'd all been, we'd all been round. Yeah. We'd all talked for our eight minutes about this one road that we were all stuck on in Wapping. And I think they must have just said to the bus driver, just get us home. We're not, we're not going to make it to Canary Wharf. Just oh. get us back. Oh my God. And so the bus driver like, had to turn down this really tiny road, which it was not bent for. And he did an amazing job. He didn't scrape anybody. But all of us were like, oh, God, I hope we don't get picked. I hope we don't get picked because <laughs> we've not planned this road. Yeah. <laughs> uh, none of us have planned it. Uh, and I remember I, there, was a, there was a gentleman on who did absolutely fantastically uh, on that one. And I was just sat there thinking, oh God, thank God, it's not me, it's not me, it's not me, because I ha- I would have absolutely flubbed it.
0: Jesus Christ, <laughs> Jesus Christ! You wouldn't, talk, you wouldn't expect there to be such rig rig. I, actually, yeah. I suppose it does make sense, but wow! Well,
1: I, it's kind like of like hazing. Withdrawal. I think <laughs> like, all the old tour guys are like, well, it's hard for me, so it's going to be hard for you. Yeah,
0: we're going to put you through hell. Yeah, I suppose at that point. If you get a difficult group, you can kind of take on the world, can't you? Yeah. Once, once you've done eight minutes talking about one road in Wapping, and so that you can is take the idea. You can yeah. take difficult Americans.
1: Yeah, yeah. That is the idea that you can graduate directly into the summer season, and you don't have to do any extra work. You, you can already do Change of the Guard, Westminster Abbey, British Museum, the Tower, and that'll that'll give you enough work to to get through a season. Um, so yeah that is the idea that they're chucking you out immediately afterwards (laughs) a little
0: baptism of fire yeah but still oh boy it's a lot well let's hope they've trained you well for today's rigorous (laughs) examination um fingers crossed (laughs) today's question uh comes from 2021 it is from the general paper one It is question two on the general paper one ah question good old question too (laughs) and it is should historical fiction keep to the facts okay what stood out to you about this question
1: um I I I guess I I I was gonna say actually I was gonna say I I watch and read a lot of historical fiction but actually I don't I I try and steer clear of it actually because I know I'm trying to talk about historical facts yeah I really don't want to get any fiction in my brain Mm. and get mixed to get mixed up with it um so actually uh, yeah I probably don't watch as much as I should. Uh, but I have watched some and the and there's all uh, for every single piece of historical fiction there's always a discussion over what they got right and what they didn't. Yes. And so yeah I think I feel like I've got enough examples to draw on. Yeah. To <laughs> to make a compa- <laughs> compelling argument. Um I think my answer would be that it is not possible for historical fiction to stick to the facts. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm thinking about, like, some pieces that are very close to real life. Uh, So I'm thinking uh, The Crown, which is generally pretty good. Yeah. Um, Like, the scenes, the dialogue might be made up, but, like, the scenes do tend to be based on something that's real. Like, even if it's just a rumour about... You know from a from an ex lady in waiting yeah. or whatever it's like at least based on something. um I'm thinking about Wolf Hall, mm-hmm. which is pretty good uh, and the Helen Mirren biopic of Elizabeth the first yes, like stuff like that that has been praised for its accuracy. but like even then, we don't have video of what happened there. Like, we don't know exactly what they said and with exactly what timing. Exactly. So, like, there always has to be something that's made up. Otherwise, it's just found footage, I guess. Yeah. Uh,
0: my, My instinct when tackling this question is to start off with how do we distinguish fiction from fact, especially when talking about history, when so much of it is based on... stories Stories. and biased accounts how how do we trust
1: yeah like you could you know if you oh god yeah I'm trying to think of a good example but yeah if you uh, the favorite for example which is a film a couple years ago about Queen Anne like you could tell that story from lots of different perspectives like lots Mm. of people at the time had different ideas as to what was actually going on yeah Uh, and so you could tell that story many many different ways but you've got to pick a way. And whatever way you pick, is going to leave out other stuff. Yeah. And and like to think about like the opposite end of the spectrum. I'm thinking about something like Sofia Coppola's *Marie Antoinette*. Yes, that's like very, very consciously. Hey, this isn't real. Or um, *Inglorious Bastards*. Yes, by Quentin Tarantino, uh, or directed by Quentin Tarantino. So that movie starts off. Uh, you think it's going to be historically accurate? Yeah. Um, hang on. Have you? Have you seen I it? have. I have seen, seen Glorious it? It. Okay. Bastards*. Well, so, um, <laughs> to, not to sound like a, a film jerk, but I really like Glorious Bastards*. And uh, you, yeah, the first like three quarters of the movie, yeah. you think this is going to be a pretty standard revenge uh, World War Two flick about some spy operation, some like, undercover thing that's going on with the Nazis. And at the end, they just, they shoot off Hitler's face. <laughs> <laughs> it just comes right up. Very literally, they shoot <laughs> off Hitler's face. Um, and he, so he's like consciously using historical inaccuracy to tell the story. It
0: almost feels like a bit of wish fulfilment in Glorious Bastards.
1: Absolutely it is wish fulfilment, right?
0: Hitler died by suicide, which I think, Hitler died by suicide But wouldn't it be cool if these Americans came in? Jewish
1: Americans went in and shot his face off in revenge for the Holocaust. How vindicating would that be? I mean, that's something that's really common to Tarantino's, all of Tarantino's work, right? Mm. Like the fantasy of revenge. Yeah. Um, So Kill Bill, uh, you know, is all about this one woman getting beat up and she has a revenge quest. Yep. About it. Um, Django Unchained Mm. is all about getting revenge on slave owners um i mean that's that's a little bit less pertinent than inglorious Bastards* mm. because it doesn't have any characters in it that are supposed to be historical people as far as i know but like at the same time if an enslaved man had like run away and then come back and blown up mm. the plantation it would be in the historical record yeah and it ain't um so that is like definitely the same sort of thing, like historical mm. wish fulfillment. What if history had gone another way? Yeah, if I mean
0: that maybe that's seemingly an aspect of historical fiction, or uh, some historical fiction is. Wouldn't it be cool if it went this way? It's, there's an element of fantasy too. I mean, I think in uh, with Bridgerton, yes, um, they've they have tackled racism, but I I haven't seen it personally, but from What I've seen in the main season, they kind of go, they mostly ignore it.
1: It's mostly ignored, but there there definitely is a bit where they they do address it in the first first episode, right? Yeah. She says, oh, you know, our people have only just been part of the aristocracy for not very long. So The way
0: I understand it is they go, oh, because Queen Charlotte married into the aristocracy, now we're more welcomed. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, I think that's the, the idea with Bridgerton.
0: And then they tackle it more head-on in the spin-off se- series that has just come out, Queen uh, Charlotte. Yeah, you see, I
1: haven't seen Queen Charlotte. So that's a, another really good example, right? Yeah. So Queen Charlotte, there's this one portrait of her where she does look black. Right. Um, So it's in the National Portrait Gallery, and she looks kind of like pale skin, but with very, very distinctive African features. Like She's got wide lips, she's got a wide nose. Mm. All the other portraits of her don't look like that, but that portrait has got many people thinking over the years hey could she have been she, black was she black was she mixed race was she a, did she have some black heritage and that is exactly what they're doing with Bridgerton like mm. wouldn't it be cool if that was true yeah um and here's all the things that might spin out of that and now we can yeah. cast it race blind and uh yeah it's 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 absolutely a historical fantasy and i think mm. that has actually more of a place than yeah. trying to do a perfectly accurate but also, like, storified retelling of events. Yeah. I think that's – it at least says something, whereas, like, if, if you want to just do it perfectly historically accurately, you read a book, you watch a documentary. Yeah. Like, we have an outlet for that. Um, if you want to tell it as a story – you've got to be saying something with it yeah rather than just hey here's a sequence of events that happened and even then you've still got to choose which ones you show and which Mm. ones you don't
0: it allows people to have that wish fulfillment or to imagine themselves in that world and say oh if only i lived in regency but it gives them sort of something to model it
1: off I suppose, yeah yeah And, and like and that's just one possible thing you can do with historical fiction you know it, what would happen if the south won the civil war or mm. what would happen if uh hitler had been assassinated in 1936 yeah like how would history be different that's something you can do absolutely and i think there's definitely value in that there's i mean there's, there must be loads of there's loads of other things you can do with historical fiction though that aren't just that mm. but that you can't do with strict documentary yeah um so let's see what else can I um so something like um and a lot of the stuff that uh i can't remember the, oh peter morgan the gentleman who, who wrote the crown um so a lot of the stuff he writes is specifically like a royalist project right so uh he hasn't just done the crown he also did uh the king's speech and uh he did a play called the audience which is about um, yes. the late queen meeting lots of different prime ministers yes. throughout her life, um, and there's like a very clear, there's like a, like a clear message that yeah. he's he's telling through all of those, which is hey, have some sympathy for the person on the throne. They're mm. human. This is their struggles. This is what it feels like to be them. And, like, that is a political project when yeah. someone's got that much power. Um, like, the the public are always portrayed in his things as, like, these very stupid, angry <laughs> angry idiots who yeah. just read the sun and believe what the sun tells them. <laughs> um, and so that's, like, a th- another thing that historical fiction is for, that it is, you know, it is for telling these political stories. It is for humanising people who feel very distant mm. um, that you that, that like you couldn't do if you were strictly trying to be super super factual about everything do you
0: think there's a dan- there's a risk involved with that where if we allow these pieces of historical fiction to become the sort of widely accepted narrative um, maybe not even maliciously that we risk losing multiple perspectives or sort of what actually
1: happened yeah so this is the argument against uh against like anything not being strictly accurate yeah is that well people don't read the history books they don't read the they don't watch documentaries they watch the fictionalized ones and you're going to give them a false impression of what actually happened and i think that i mean that's definitely true I think the crown has been really successful yeah. in uh, humanising the queen. I've talked to a lot of Americans, and they've all seen it. They all love it. <laughs> and they all think, oh, no, it, you know, Diana dying was actually really hard for, for the queen, yeah, yeah. mostly. That's, that's mostly what they got from it. Yeah. But, <laughs> but it's been really hard for her.
0: The queen was the real victim in that <laughs> tragedy. <laughs> and,
1: you know, I'm sure, I'm sure it wasn't the easiest of times right. for her. But there's different ways you could tell that story, yeah, and they've only read one, but you but the same is true of of historical fact as well like mm. you that's like you, when you're telling a story in a historical book or in a documentary, you are telling it from one particular perspective. yeah I'm trying to think of like something else I mean, I have noticed like a lot of uh, a lot more people. In my YouTube comments, asking me about Queen Charlotte's heritage since the
0: really? Bridgerton
1: movie, uh, since the Bridgerton stuff came out, like, oh, but, and they're like they're quite sure it is true, like oh, Queen Charlotte was definitely black, mm. and uh, they don't, they haven't got that. Actually, it's it's not certain that there's it's something we, you know, we still argue about. Yeah. Um. So I think it can give people like more certainty Mm -hmm.
0: and you you lose certain nuance as a writer you have to kind of make you have to make decisions I'm gonna right I'm gonna cast her as a black woman I'm gonna cast um I'm gonna decide that Hitler gets his face shot off at the end I'm (laughs) making this decision you have to be quite decisive with it
1: yeah definitely you, you you you
0: you lose that ambiguity.
1: And you, you. it's also in, like, really tiny things, like how the actor portrays the character. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, uh, if you watch um, most biopics of Elizabeth I, uh, they'll portray her spymaster, Francis Walsingham, as this real slime ball, like, mm. like shifty, always, you know, moving around <laughs> in the shadows, speaking in a very... Quiet voice. Very learned. Quiet kind of Jeremy voice. Irons character. Yes. And you're like, oh, yeah, this guy's up to no good. All these
0: machinations in the background. And
1: like, he did definitely do loads of machinations, but that doesn't mean that that was his personality. Right. Like, he might have been, he might have been like, he might have liked going to plays. He might have, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and he might have, uh, you know, had, he might have liked drinking. He might have <laughs> gone out hunting all the time. I'm sure he was a real
0: laugh riot when he wasn't
1: <laughs> doing
0: machinations I mean, and spy mastering like,
1: but that i mean i'm sh- you know i don't know he because, could have been because i yeah i don't know all i get from him is is uh, is this the actor's portrayal and it's not necessarily what he's like the actor doesn't know no the actor um, can
0: only you know you have to make a decision you have to when you look at historical accounts very often you're getting conflicting points of view, you're getting mm. one person saying this, one person saying this, but as an actor, as a writer, as anyone creating involved in creating historical fiction, you have to make the choice and say, right, I'm going to stick with what these people say and disregard what these people say.
1: Yeah, you've got to collapse it, absolutely. Mm. And what that means is that in my head, he is a complete slimeball. <laughs> I can't imagine him any other way, even though I've never met the guy. And so I don't actually know um i always i always
0: quite enjoyed francis walsingham when studying elizabeth i i kind of imagined him like come like bit more james bondish coming Ah. in and being like bam stop that rebellion bam stop that armada
1: okay i
0: i found him a bit more kind of
1: like he's he's in black because that's like the the elizabethan equivalent of the the dinner jacket yes absolutely Mm -hmm. not
0: not so much slimeball more kind of like uh may, maybe i imagined him slightly more austin powers a bit more <laughs> like he was
1: yeah he was maybe. eccentric
0: with it in my head
1: oh <laughs> that's cool I, yeah uh, that'd be lovely but you, i've never seen a portrayal of him like that
0: maybe who knows
1: that's yeah maybe next time they do an elizabeth the first biopic whoever gets cast as francis walsingham they play him like austin yeah powers. i need to be
0: the consultant on that and if they do <laughs> i need to get royalties
1: yeah obviously yeah send uh send cherry a check yeah absolutely um, for her idea of yeah making making francis Walsingham into austin powers (laughs)
0: exactly um (laughs) i suppose with this this idea of sort of conflicting accounts of uh people it's how do we distinguish when looking at facts how do we distinguish what is fiction and what is fact when looking at accounts how do we decide what to pick from
1: so I mean I to a certain extent this I think if you're writing historical fiction it's it's you don't have to worry about that so much like you can just chill out it's (laughs) it's you don't have to worry it's not your job don't don't stress over it that's something for the historians to yeah. to agonise over like, exactly which sources are most trustworthy and uh, you know wh- which biases are in which one mm. and which accounts might not be being represented. Um, whereas if you're doing fiction, I think it just frees you a little bit to mm. say, oh, I, I, okay, I've, I've reached the limit of my caring. Yeah. Just pick one, just yeah. pick something. Um, and, you know, uh, if we're... Doing, uh, if we're doing uh, Elizabeth I, we're just we're just not gonna have mm. her have black teeth. Yeah, it's just not we're not doing it. It's not it's gonna it's gonna send the wrong message. Yeah, modern people are gonna read into that the wrong way. Um, I mean, this is this is a thing you see, especially with uh, critiques of uh, historical costume, is that you will say people will say, oh, this costume is not quite accurate and this mm. and this, um, but the costumes have to be readable to modern audiences yeah and what that ends up meaning is that cod pieces they just gotta go (laughs) (laughs) people it means something different yeah for a bloke to walk around with a big fake willy on his on his front
0: yeah today doesn't quite translate
1: it, it will make the audience think something wrong about yeah. the character. Like, if Francis Walsingham is <laughs> skulking around in the shadows being all, like, secret and, and dark and yeah. mysterious, and then he's also got a massive padded codpiece, it's going to... Yeah, it it does
0: kind of change the context slightly. <laughs> it does kind of make, oh, what's he, oh. What are you yeah.
1: doing over there, Francis? You think, oh, there must be something weird about mm. this guy. Like he's
0: Fashion is cyclical, though.
1: It's true. We so should bring it
0: back. Maybe they are going to come back around. Some it's got it. Trend right? prediction. Eventually. Cod pieces. <laughs> um, you make historical YouTube videos. YouTube videos about history, which are brilliant, and everyone listening should go and watch. They're they're really great. How do you decipher what to include and what to kind of bring to the forefront when looking at uh, historical accounts?
1: So. In a way, I'm kind of in the most fortunate position of all. Mm. Um, in between the uh, historians and the directors of historical dramas, yeah. I'm kind of in the middle uh, because I'm not doing historical research from scratch. Academics have done that; that is their job. They do that for me, very kind of them. <laughs> um, and I'm trying. To, I'm going off what they're telling me, so yeah. I'm reading, you know, the next level down. I, you know, I can sometimes read historical sources, but mostly I'm reading articles about historical sources, yeah. books about historical sources. And so I, on one hand, I'm limited by what they tell me, but on the other hand, I'm also kind of palming off that job of uh, uh, of balancing which sources are biased and which ones aren't yeah. onto someone else a little bit, and... Um, it's, yeah, it, I think history communication and the actual, like, work of history that historians do are two different things. Yeah. And sometimes you get a proper academic historian who is good at history communication, but they don't necessarily go hand in hand. No. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel a little bit fortunate that I don't have to do that so much. Um, that th- yeah, mostly that is that is someone else's job kind of passed on to someone else yeah I mean partly it's like just looking at what my audience is interested in as well so um you know there's there's characters that are interesting right now there's ones that are sort of part of the zeitgeist and mm. you know, people are really interested in uh BAME history and queer history at the moment um and less interested in I don't know who's, who are people not interested in at the moment I don't know Ethel read the unready uh <laughs> Florence Nightingale people aren't super psyched about Florence Nightingale at the moment Mm. Um, like characters who used to be in lots of children's history books yeah thought of as very interesting Um, yeah it goes through cycles fashion trends different characters Um, so yeah that's something to take into account as well Mm. I suppose
0: one aspect of this question is kind of why is historical fact important is fact when looking at history how important how how much uh, weight can we give to a fact of an event that no one you know or that everyone who lived through it is dead how much weight can we give to facts
1: so I think the reason we're I guess uh, yeah, there's a couple of reasons we're interested in historical facts um, but a big one is because it helps us tell stories about the present right yeah so uh, and those stories are often quite political Mm -hmm. um so i i once did a video on um the blitz Mm -hmm. in london and how we use it as a story to tell ourselves about the present and in particular i was looking at how we talk about the coronavirus pandemic and compare it to the blitz so when lockdowns first started there were quite a few different articles in national newspapers saying hey this is just like the blitz yeah, um, we need to have that blitz spirit we have blitz spirit we've managed to get through the blitz we're going to get through this too um we're going to you know we're dealing with uh like not having enough on shelves like the, the yeah. stuff missing on shelves wearing masks is a bit like wearing gas masks yes um you know going and taking shelter is like going into a bomb shelter uh we did it in the 1940s and we will do it again so that is a story that people are telling themselves about history and making modern political hay out of it which that that hay would be um i guess like follow the rules um it's not going to be forever keep your hope up and, and also like the connection of the we of that's living through the pandemic with the we that lived through this. yes the and, like, making that connection uh, and eliding those two groups of people into the same person. Um, and so, to a certain extent, the reason that... Uh, one of the reasons that historical fact is important is because they... If you, want to ch- if you wanted to challenge that narrative, one of the ways you would do that is to say well, hey, actually, people didn't bother wearing their gas masks yeah. in 1939. Um, and you do it by checking the historical fact, uh, by, by fact-checking it, basically. Yeah. Um, you say, hey, uh, people didn't bother going down into bomb shelters, actually. Um, 40% of people never bothered. Wow. Uh, on, yeah, most nights when there was an air raid shelter, most people did not bother. <laughs> and we see all these pictures of people in the tube... Like sheltering in the tube, it was a tiny, tiny, like less than one percent of Londoners went into the tube. Wow. Yeah, because like, it only takes less than one percent to fill up every single mm. tube station that there is. Um. Yeah, and so yeah, the way you that I think that it's like, one reason we're interested in historical fact. I mean, historical fact is interesting in and of itself, but at the same time, there are reasons. There are like other reasons why mm. historical fact ends up being important because history is used for for modern narratives
0: yeah it's important to
1: preserve the truth I suppose um it's it's less that I think and more that like if you don't like that modern narrative mm. then you have to go back and and yeah. fact check it if you like the modern narrative then hey who <laughs> cares like yes yeah, that's, that's probably about right yeah. that's, Uh, you know the the facts that disprove it well we can just argue that they're immaterial it's too small of a percentage to matter or you know that that there was there's some way of arguing it um but you you do need to if you do want to fact check it you've got to know what the facts are
0: yeah do you think that people who i can't find a way to Phrase this question without sounding rude. Oh, okay, <laughs> not right. to, not to you. Uh, do Do you think there's people who only consume historical fiction? Do you think that there is? Is there something wrong with that? Only consuming historical fiction and never bothering to check up on the facts, or or taking historical fiction as? Nah, I mean, that's the truth. most that's
1: most people, isn't it? Mm. Uh, I, most people don't go and read the original Canterbury Tales in Middle English. Thing. No. Uh, it's, I, mean, I think that's fine. Like, not everyone can be interested in everything. You could ask the same question about science. Yeah. Like, do people really, do, should people go and read the original papers and yeah. not, uh, not listen to, I don't know, the I fucking love science YouTube page <laughs> uh, or Facebook page yeah. uh, instead. You don't have time for everything in your life. you got to pick the things you're interested <laughs> in. And if, you don't want to go and read original historical sources. I think that's fine. Yeah. Um. Just as long as you're aware, I guess that mm-hmm. that some people do go and read the original sources, and they might know a little bit more. Yeah. About the whole context of of the piece. Um. And you know, I, I'm the same. Like I said, I I'm not a, a proper academic historian, so they're going to know more than me. And mm. as long as I try and keep that in mind, which I hopefully do. Yeah. Uh do my best. (laughs) But uh yeah, it should be okay. And whenever you get fact checked, you just gotta uh yeah, you gotta take it on the chin and yeah and roll with it and and not feel like it's an attack against you. (laughs) Um
0: I'm interested in your time as a Viking. Um that's (laughs) how I mean in a way that was historical fiction because you're sort of building a character around oh my god based yeah. in the uh, viking yeah i made uh, up era. a viking you made consist. up you made up a viking how did you navigate that did you look at facts or like did you look read
1: up specific sources did that how did so you interesting i've never thought of it like that before that's absolutely fantastic uh yeah you're totally right so there was a really weird tension between uh like staying in character mm. and not at the museum. And some staff members did it more than others. Uh, some would, would try and stay in character as much as possible. Some would just be dressed up and not be in character. Mm. But you know, you couldn't ever do it fully. You couldn't ever be completely in character. Yeah. Um, and sometimes, you know, sometimes the, the guests would, would say, oh, you know uh oh you've you know you've you've got a, a radio you've got a walkie-talkie uh and you're like yep yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's in case something happens so i can talk to my manager and, or you know there's there's electric lights yeah. down here or you're not speaking old norse yeah or uh yeah loads and loads of things like this that you have to just suspension of disbelief <laughs> your way through yeah um, I and mean, people ask you where the loos are like all the time that's <laughs> Fifty percent of the questions. Yeah. Where are the leaves? And you can't say to them, "Well, as a mighty Viking, we (laughs) go and poop in a hole in the floor." Yeah, the gardens. It's not not the most sort
0: of helpful thing to do. You'd be pretty annoyed if a Viking did
1: that to you. It's yeah, you you just got to drop it at some point. So yeah, you you do try and keep up the fiction. Mm -hmm. I, I I try for a little while, but after a while, you just you go, yeah, it's. Uh, I'm speaking modern English. Yes, there's electric lights. Yeah. Um, yes, I know what Google is. <laughs> um so the the place I worked uh had um, it wasn't just us that were made up. Um okay. so the, the the museum I worked at is called Jorvik. And it was based on a single archaeological dig, the whole museum. Wow. Uh, But it was a massive dig. So they dug up the whole of the street that the museum was on in the 1980s, the whole thing, and they found like a series of houses uh, and like craft workshops from a thousand years ago. And what the museum did was basically to rebuild the entire street as it was wow. a thousand years ago. Uh, I can't remember exactly which year it, it was set. Hmm, 10th century at some point. So, you know, they rebuilt the... They you know, they found a guy who was a blacksmith, uh, who'd got, got loads of blacksmithing tools yeah. chucked in his bin. And so they rebuilt a little blacksmith's house and they rebuilt a little leather worker's house and a wood turner's house. There was, like, a toilet and they rebuilt the toilet. Um, but at some point, like... You do have to make some stuff up. Like, hey, mm. what did this guy look like? They had like a little animatronic of him. Yeah, so they've got to figure out. You know, they've got to have a guess at what he looks like, or you know, how old was he uh, in this time period, and did he have kids, and that sort of stuff. Um, you have to put like a layer of fiction over it to kind of smooth it out. Yeah, makes sense. Like the, the the amount of history that we know is kind of rough and jaggedy mm. like a like an uneven floor <laughs> and you've got to pour your resin into that <laughs> into that gap <laughs> to make it flat um so some at some points there'll be no information at all so you've got to pour a load of resin in there and mm. at some points we'll, we'll know quite a lot so you can just thin layer of resin over the top which uh yeah and you just gotta i mean it's, it's difficult because uh, well i was gonna say you just got to be honest about which bits are and aren't made up but at the same time you can't sit down, everybody down yeah well, before you go in <laughs> just uh, please uh, sign this list of <laughs> things that things that we had to make up just so that you know yeah so yeah it's it's you've got to do a little bit of self-discernment there yeah um but yeah like and, he, and that was a museum and there was still so much fiction involved yeah in it um
0: so much of history in order to make it human and to make it feel more real, you have to add fiction to it, I suppose, in order to make it feel more
1: alive. Oh my God, this <laughs> is getting very Terry Pratchett all of a sudden. Stories are what uh, the what was it? The falling ape needs to meet the rising angel, or something like that. Oh, um, oh God! Yeah, <laughs> I think we've just got a breakthrough. Stories, <laughs> fiction is human. You need it to to even to to to, to uh, interact with other humans. Like these are. These are real people, these people who lived a thousand years ago, yeah, but in order to connect with them, we've got to make something up about them.
0: History becomes quite dry and and, and uninteresting when you very much just stick to this is the fact this is what we found.
1: this document found says this A this scrap document of says this silk fabric, yeah, uh, with warp wefts yeah and, uh, it was two point four millimeters by. 7.9 millimetres. Yeah. I, th-
0: yeah. I think very often in history we forget that humans were involved. And I think very often, I always got annoyed with this when studying, I studied the Cold War at A-level, and I always got annoyed at how often we'd be like, yep, yeah. and then the US Army dropped uh, Agent Orange over the jungle, and now we're moving on to this treaty.
1: Uh, because yeah. we, we
0: we had so much to get through. that. Yeah, You lose your humanity when you kind of don't tell stories
1: yeah I I'm, I'm sorry you got the history like that that's I would say yeah. a bad way of history communication yeah they
0: tried their best and I mean I, I just think you, you it was because we were fitting such a yeah kind of we're like right we're gonna do the entire cold war and we're gonna have two
1: years to do it yeah you I mean you got to at some point you have um, to you
0: have to admit things just for just to get the whole um
1: to get the whole span of the time. Yeah, the whole yeah, story. Yeah. And so yeah, you've just got to zoom out basically. Yeah. Um and so that's going to mean you miss details that might make it much more interesting and humanizing like yeah. what is it like to get agent orange poured on your entire forest. Um which yeah, I get I bet would have been would have made it much more alive and interesting for yeah. you as a 17-year-old learning about uh was it Vietnam?
0: Yeah. Well, ge- generally the Cold War, but within that we then went into the Vietnam War and kind of dropped into all these things across it. But again, it was very much. And then this happened. Great. On to the next lesson was doing yeah. this, and you
1: and you could spend the whole two years just on the Vietnam War, yeah. and within that you could spend the whole two years just on, you know, Ho Chi Minh Trail, and yeah. within that you could do your entire two years about one guy, in, yeah. in it, and you can keep zooming in uh more or less forever i think i guess yeah it, uh it depends on when your historical sources run out but uh yeah i, I that does sound like a, a very dry way of doing it yeah um i th- i mean that's something that military history often has a bit of trouble with i think um is ending up being a list of dates and battles and equipment yeah um rather than yeah remembering that there were humans involved who yeah. got their legs shot off and uh you know had to be away from their children and yeah and this sort of thing, which for a lot of people is what they need to, to be interested in it, yeah. absolutely. and I suppose that's why historical fiction
0: is important because it allows us to focus in on those specific sorts. Yeah. Specific stories.
1: Yeah, and, and do the humanisation yeah. and, uh, yeah, make them, uh, yeah, and, and yeah, smooth that out. Smooth out that bumpy, bumpy road <laughs> that is history. Yeah, it's, I, I'm going to have to work on that metaphor. That's, that's a very nice analogy,
0: or maybe uh, could it be um, like a, a road with that uh, you need to pave over?
1: Or I'm thinking pop, like pop uh, holes. I'm thinking one of those um, tables that's made out of like a tree. Oh, and pour people resin pour resin it. over it. Yeah, uh, but that's not a great metaphor. I'm going to have to. <laughs> <laughs> it's still like history is like one of those tables. <laughs> <laughs> <People> <laughs> pour resin over it. Uh, it doesn't really work. So I'm going to have to think of a pithier, mm. pithier metaphor than that for my, uh, for my final exam.
0: Call into the show and let us know <laughs> if you know of anything <laughs> bumpy that can be filled in.
1: Yes, do our work like a, for like us. Like
0: a pumice stone? Those are quite bumpy and full of holes. Swiss cheese?
1: Yeah. Well, what would you fill it in with? More cheese? Or it's like one of those goo things you put on your keyboard to clean mm. it <laughs> <laughs> with that i'm
0: gonna say time's up on this exam right uh, can i get your thesis statement to the question should historical fiction keep to the facts uh
1: so thesis statement uh no it shouldn't keep to the facts because the fiction is the resin that <laughs> the, the resin of the table of history uh, that we need to smooth it out and uh, and find humanization in the people of the past amazing yeah we did it yeah oh my God. answered the question smashed it i didn't think i'd be able to do it it's <laughs> fantastic
0: um now all souls mm. only allows generally up to two people every year some
1: years one people God, up to two yeah. like imagine like being one of the years where they're like sorry only one this year only one like, well you had the space one year and you just decided that
0: was one year place. nobody got in oh, my God. I th- actually I think multiple years nobody's got in because they looked at the applicants and they went no nah, no nah, you're good enough
1: Like, they have the money and the space, and they're just like, "Mm, I don't feel like it. None of you are quite good enough. That's a crushing blow. If you'd done the the exam, and you weren't even good enough to to beat nobody. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, However, here,
0: at the exam hall, everybody gets in. Hooray. So, um, we have reviewed your application. We have uh, gone over it with a fine-tooth comb made out of scrutiny (laughs) Uh, we were on a metaphor high and i was trying to think of one i I lost it the way i lost the way we've gone over your application and i am glad to inform you that we're going to welcome you into the hallowed halls of the alumni of the exam hall yay
1: you're accepted Woo!
0: (laughs) how does it feel oh this
1: is a really i mean i guess this is also a pretty exclusive club so far right
0: yeah i mean uh i'm oh I can't do maths on the top of my head I think
1: so oh, yeah. So, far how long has All Souls fellowship been going for like yes. 100 years yes. have you had more than 100 episodes I haven't yet well there we go this is a more exclusive club
0: uh the, the on record uh they I think they started keeping records in 1914 that's a great okay. question hold on I should know this already if my entire thing is All Souls <laughs> I should know when they started doing it
1: I think uh, the question list I saw went back to the twenties. Yeah, so the makes sense because in 1920 they did a lot of reforms. Mm. Well, I've I've got
0: up until 1914. Okay, 1438. Yeah, was when it was founded. Yes. So, um, yeah, I haven't quite reached. They are. I mean, technically, (laughs) if you look at the facts, I am more exclusive than All Souls at this point because I've had about. I think this is going to be episode eleven.
1: Oh, well, there we go.
0: So maybe I'm the one who needs to do some self reflection, and <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, maybe Oxford should be applying to you.
0: <laughs> absolutely, let's <laughs> let's let's get them in. I, I don't. I wouldn't let them in. I think just to spite them, I'd say Ooh, no. They're the one person. <laughs> that
1: work that isn't eligible i do in
0: exchange would you Ah. let me go to all souls no then you're not allowed on my podcast (laughs) now um if you actually got accepted into all souls you would get seven years worth of funding to complete any research project of your choice you would be given a salary you're given board you're given access to study any subject of your choice at oxford and you are given contacts with leading professionals in your field of study Mm -hmm. so essentially it's the removal of all financial barriers lots kind of suddenly lots of open doors presenting themselves to you Mm. if you had seven years to complete any research project of your choice
1: what would you try and achieve so I mean I don't know if I've got the attention span for anything for things, <laughs> but uh, in terms of the big project that is bubbling in the way, the way in my brain at the moment I would do my uh, my my research project on the fascinating subject of railings um, Ooh. and <laughs> let me explain uh, <laughs> so um, uh, mostly it would be about the enclosure movement so to- oh so okay. to explain for viewers or listeners, uh, enclosure is kind of... Oh, how do I explain it very succinctly? Um, basically, in medieval times, we used to have like big open fields that didn't have hedges between them, and everyone in the village would be able to use bits of the fields. And then over the period of about 400, 500 years, um, those fields started getting hedged off, and fenced off and railed off and ditches dug around them so that the peasants couldn't use them anymore and now like most people don't own any land anymore don't have any land that they can uh that they can use um so the the process is called enclosure it happens over a really long period of time and it's basically making land private for the first time in in british history like saying okay this is uh, not just land that I own, but land that I exclusively own—that nobody yeah. else has any rights to. Which is, sounds very obvious to us now, but it's kind of a new thing uh, mm. in terms of history. Um, and I don't think anyone's done a proper pop history primer on enclosures yeah. since the seventies. At the very, at the very latest, I think the last big one was nineteen eleven someone did like a proper you know aimed at ordinary people primer of the whole movement mm. from beginning to end explaining what it is in basic terms so that's what I want to do uh and one day maybe I'll make a four-hour YouTube video <laughs> about, about railings um because now it seems so obvious to us that land is exclusively owned yeah that uh that if you own a piece of land, you can just rail it off and nobody else is allowed in and you can do whatever you like to it. But That's not historically how we've thought about it. Um, and there's still like, huge chunks of London that are owned by individual yeah. people. So the Duke of Bedford owns most of Bloomsbury. The Duke of Westminster owns Mayfair and Belgravia. And within those big areas, there's all these little parks that are fenced off yeah but
0: in <laughs> london this is such a frustrating thing living in london so much green space gets fenced off yeah. london is actually quite green yeah it's just you can't access it yeah yeah you haven't that literally you don't have the key yeah it is un, it's locked away yeah and unless you live in a very fancy house in chelsea
1: yeah. you don't have a key to it yeah, and th- it's, I think Bloomsbury is really interesting for this because um, most of those squares have started opening up now, except oh, I think Bedford Square is still closed off. Mm. But you can compare it really easily to Russell Square, which is literally just around the corner. So, Bedford Square is, is still enclosed, you have to have a key to get in. But, Russell Square, um, the Duke has obviously come to some sort of arrangement with Camden Council. And so they've opened it up to the public and Camden Council pays for the bins and the gardening. Mm. And there are thousands of people that use Russell Square and enjoy it every single day and get so much use out of it and enjoyment and pleasure. Whereas literally nobody's ever in Bedford Square. Every yeah. single time I go past it, it's completely it's empty. empty. Nobody gets empty. any fun out of it whatsoever. Yeah, like, Is this the best way of organising? And, th- and you can draw a direct line from that to back to enclosure. And I think someone needs to... Put that all together in a big story, like a history of the enclosure of land, yeah, or, yeah, and then going right up to how it you know we we tend to say that enclosure finished in the 19th century, that it was complete by by then, but that way of thinking still carries on, it still mm-hmm. influences how we apportion land and what we do with it.
0: yeah, privatization of land is such a sort of relevant issue, yeah. I can only speak to my experience being born and raised in London but there's there's so many you're very literally gate kept from so much space mm-hmm. unless you are rich enough to be granted a key yeah it it feels quite um relevant to all souls as well in the way that all souls you know it, it's gatekeeping of knowledge really it's gatekeeping of, of opportunity it's a group of people who have sat around and said only those who have gotten into Oxford uh, who have been able to even apply for Oxford have been able. That's such a small portion of the population already. Mm. Um, yeah, it's a percentage of a percentage. It's a percentage of a percentage. And then out of that tiny, tiny percentage, we're going to say only one, two, sometimes three and sometimes none
1: are given this opportunity every year yeah um i mean even just like stuff like the the library like you you can't you can't go in the library unless you're a member of the university so if you wanted to read a book in there that's <laughs> sorry yeah uh i mean that's that's really interesting as well i mean and and there's loads of other modern uh, issues it connects to so um like before enclosure it wasn't clear that just because you owned land meant you could Dig it up and maybe really? get the oil underneath it or the mining rights. Mm. Um, just because you owned a piece of land didn't necessarily mean you had mining rights to it. Um, like you could give that away separately, or yeah, like it wasn't just because you owned it doesn't didn't mean you could do anything you liked with it. Yeah, and so like these days when we have companies that are like buying up land to frack, um. Like that, the reason they can do that is because of enclosure yeah. um, because they go well this is ours now They're, you can't just say anything about it because we legally own it and that puts a, you know, even just a legal barrier around it yeah. where you can't see what's going on inside because we own it uh, and you can't come and touch it um, yeah it, it, it extends its, its tentacles into lots of modern life mm. in this country mm. It's a real big topic, so I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna need at least at least one year. I'm gonna stay uh <laughs> I'm gonna stay focused on it for at least one year. <laughs> uh, hopefully the whole seven. And uh, yeah, uh, hopefully my uh, hopefully all souls amazing resources are gonna be focused on on this topic So I, I do think someone needs to look at it.
0: Yeah. Well, Jenny, thank you so much for being here today. This has been thank such you for a brilliant me. conversation. Before I um, send you out into the world uh, of obviously changed, forever changed from this (laughs) incredible examination experience, do you have anything you'd like to plug, promote, any final words of wisdom you wish to endow upon the hungry ears of the listeners of this (laughs) podcast?
1: Uh, Sure. So I'm Jade Draper London. You can find me on YouTube and TikTok, uh, Jade Draper on YouTube, Jade Draper London on TikTok. I talk about uh, London history and British history. Um, and you can also hire me for private tours around London. That's jdraper.co.uk. Brilliant. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely. And uh, may, the, <laughs> may the resin of your history be smooth upon the, ta- the table of, of your stories. <laughs> Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very, very much for listening to this episode of The Exam Hall. If you wish to stay updated with The Exam Hall, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at The Exam Hall Pod. And while you're there, if you want to stay updated with me, you can find me at Cherry the CherryTheEckle. If you would like to be a guest on a future episode of The Exam Hall, please get in touch. I would love to have you on board. You can click the link in the description, which will take you to an expression of interest form. Or you can just get in contact on social media. I promise I won't bite. I want to give a very big shout out to Bounds Theatre, whose support has made this podcast possible. And I want to give a very big shout out to you for listening. That's very nice of you. Uh, I hope that you are having a lovely day and I hope it continues to stay lovely. And maybe if you're lucky get even lovelier. I will see you in two weeks for the next episode. See you then.